Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuds, and my co-host calling in from Amsterdam, Alon Ben-Joseph. Today we have another exciting release to discuss, so I'll kick this one over to Alon to rifle through the mailbag and pull out our first question of the day. I think we should start with Andrew Ellis's email. He sent us an email asking us, what do you chaps think of the two new Tudor FXDs? made for the Alini Red Bull Racing Edition. Rob, have you seen them uh, being launched uh, a while back? Uh, I, I saw a leak last week of a Red Bull branded Tudor, which I didn't actually identify as an FXD, and I expected something to come, but I didn't expect what we got because it wasn't anything like the leak, really. They're much more paired back. We'll describe them in a moment. But Andrew Ellis, what an interesting name. Do you think he's any relation of Giles? I don't know, you tell me how popular the Ellis surname is in the UK. I, I know one American Ellis who's very famous. and He loves boats by, by coincidence. He has his super yachts built in Holland. That's the founder of Cisco. Oh, wow. Okay, well, that's a pretty big Ellis. The biggest Ellis I know is Giles Ellis. <laughs> I had a friend at university called Samantha Ellis, so I guess it's not the most uncommon surname, but I don't know too many people with the name. Anyway, Andrew, thank you for your question. Very kind of you. So Alingi, for anyone that doesn't know, it's a racing team, a boat racing team, a sailing team. They sail these incredible catamarans in all of the finest competitions around the world. And we've seen them pair up with brands before. The one I remember off the top of my head, most notably is HYT. I think they did an H4 together, perhaps. That was pretty cool. Uh, a very different price point from what we're looking at here. Today, these two Tudors, there are two, am I right, Alan? Is that correct? Two Tudors? Correct. We have a three-hand uh, version and a chronograph in an FXD case. Okay, so the key, key thing about the FXD, for people that aren't familiar with that terminology, is the fixed lugs. And that splits opinion. I think fans of Tudor love it. Maybe those that weren't fans of the brand beforehand won't be turned on by something like this. But you never know. What do you think of these two pieces? Give us a quick visual breakdown of what we're looking at here. So I love the initial. I actually love all the F, uh, Pelagos watches. I own the LHD, so the half-hand diver. And I'm on the waiting list for the Pelagos 39 and the FXD. So as you rightfully said, so the FXD stands for fixed lugs. Um, which they link to MN, Marine Nationale. So the French Naval Elite Diver Corps. Um, why? Because historically they made the blue subs in Rolex cases, Rolex straps, Rolex crowns for the Marine Nationale. They had blue and later on they created the snowflake hand on the hour markers for them. So there are uh, deep ties there. The newest Pelagos FXD, which was launched just at the end of 21, they do a kind of limited run. They call them annual specials. So every year they engrave the case back with MN and then the year 21, 22. So they're limited batches. Uh, fixed lugs, so you can only loop through either a thin rubber strap made by Tudor or a Velcro strap. So no textile no NATO, and no recycled stuff. For the Alini Red Bull Racing team, they created a new material, which is they call carbon composite. 
So it's a mix of titanium, steel, and carbon. It's a blackened case. The bezel is the same as the other FXDs, which is titanium with now a carbon inlay, bidirectional, uh, although it has a scale from a zero to 60 minutes in a reversed order. Blue dial, matte finish, and something I don't like is Alini Red Bull Racing is printed on the flange. That's the inner bezel that's a bit slanted. Uh, red accents, it does look fresh, uh, toolish. I salute them. I welcome them. The chronograph is bi-compact, so it has a subdial at the 3 o'clock and the 9 o'clock. The pushers are not really pump pushes. What would you call these pushes, Rob? I'd call them top hat pushes. Good one. Top hat pushes it is. So, Judah, thank you for this quick strike, this surprise. I like it, and thank you. My turn. Let's begin. These look like toys. I don't like them. I don't like the FXC to begin with. Everybody knows that. I think it's weak. I know you love it. I'm sorry. I love the Pelagos. I think Pelagos is one of the greatest modern watches in the whole industry. My favorite is the LHD with the off-white or even yellowish loom and the roulette date wheel. But I think the standard one is an absolute sub-killer. I think it's superb. It looks even better on the wrist than it does on press images. It looks pretty damn tasty on those so i'll maybe give these fxds a slight benefit of a doubt until i see them in real life but let's start with those top hat pushers they look a bit ridiculous they look like an absolute afterthought i don't know what the thinking is there the case composite okay god okay what year is this 43 millimeters black carbon composite case we're still into that i don't know why we needed it i don't think anybody asked for it i just think it looks cheap to be honest, if I'm being frank, which I generally am when it comes to these things. Titanium bezel, I like that aspect of it. Bidirectional timing bezel, I suppose it is. Weird choice for a watch that's meant to be used in the water. I mean, I guess the original FXD uh, is maybe more of a dive watch than this one. This one, I suppose you would use above the water. So maybe it's more of a Yacht Master version of a dive watch. So okay, fine, whatever. That's okay. It's fine for us on dry land. The rehaul or flange printing that you mentioned, yeah, it's a bit naff, but I don't mind that so much. I think that's one of the more acceptable aspects of this design. The dial is weird. What What is it? Like a sporty lavender shade? It's not blue, is it? It's really purple. Now, I must commend Tudor on the mixture of purple and red. That, I believe, is a much underused color combo. But this watch doesn't look in the least bit aggressive to me. And the Alinghi, even the Alinghi logo, the sort of red, spiky swirl looks pretty hardcore this watch is oddly tame pricing time only 3590 euros not bad for a tudor to be fair i'm not going to complain about that 4964 the chronograph maybe even better value if you're looking for that kind of thing i do like the straps even though i'm not a fan of the fixed looks because i don't like how limiting that factor is one thing i want to pull up though is this term by compacts is used to describe twin subdial watches very frequently. But a bicompax is not necessarily what we're seeing here. What we're seeing here is a compare layout. And what that means, or you could call it a compax, I suppose, but a compare layout 
is when you have one subdial attached to the chronograph. A bicompax is when you have two subdials attached to the chronograph. Now, that means that most three subdial watches are technically themselves bicompax, although you wouldn't normally use that term to describe a triple. You would normally call that a compax. What we have here is one subdial attached to the chronograph. That's at three o'clock, which shows us a 45-minute counter, interestingly. And then at nine o'clock, we have the going seconds or the running seconds or just the regular seconds hand whatever you want to call it, and that is therefore not included in the subdial count. Did you know that, Alon? I actually didn't, so thank you, and I keep on saying it. I keep on learning with the real-time show. Kudos to you. If you like that, though, there's more to know about compacts. So this is really interesting. So like a compur can either be called a compur or a unicompax. So that's really technically a unicompax. Okay, a bicompax, although it's used frequently, even printed on some dials. So our friend Richard Benz from Shidu Underdog, he has bicompax printed on the dial of his watches. And it's actually a compare or a unicompax, but it's totally accepted. Okay, I'm being a pedant. I'm being a subdial pedant. I hold my hands up. You can criticize me for that all you want. But by the letter of the law, the modern term is being misapplied. But bicompax is frequently used for a watch with a pair of subdials. Now, a compax is a name for a watch with subdials arranged in a V shape. So three, six, and nine. Okay, this is pretty common, more, even more common nowadays. In the early 2000s, there are a lot of Valjoux layouts, which actually have the subdials at six, nine, and 12. Now, they are also compax watches. They could be by compax watches, but they are specifically known as Valjoux because of the widely used Valjoux 7750 that had this layout. A tricompax, believe it or not, actually tends to have four subdials arranged to 12, 3, 6, and 9. Three of those would be linked to the chronograph, and one of them would be the going seconds or something else. So there you go. There's some interesting additional information, and I will shut up now because the mailbag is bursting and ask us another question. I'm sorry. Don't apologize for sharing your uh, wisdom and your passion. The real-time show network recently, by the way, evolved into a WhatsApp community, meaning we now made it more like a Slack channel or a Discord channel, meaning the community has now several channels. With that, we uh, made it more possible to have more banter and less noise for those that don't want to. So if you want to join, feel welcome. We basically split the serious from the craziness. So you could either subscribe to all the channels or just subscribe to the regular general channel so feel welcome dm rob david or i and we'll send you a link to join that community and from that community we still get a lot of questions one of them was from bt and he asks us is breguet the most overlooked legacy brand in terms of just classic watchmaking Rob, you want to go or should I go first? Okay. I actually would dare to say that I adore Brigitte. Funnily enough, I don't own one. Currently, I had a Brigitte Type 20, a modern iteration, so from the 
early 2000s, which I didn't love that much because I love the OG type 20s, Brig and Maine. And then recently we saw the relaunch of the type 20, either written with numbers two and zero or double X in Roman style. The difference was the two and zero was the military version, if I'm not mistaken. And if it's written with double X is the civilian version. If I mix them up, dear listeners, I apologize. And it also explains why I love the Aaron Type 20 so much that our dear friend Tom van Willig is has relaunched and is growing. And, 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 and I've recently purchased a re-edition from his uh, uh, 2.0 brand. So he revived Aaron. And I bought the last piece with plexiglass. And we discussed this on air recently during one of our Q&As. And I will definitely obtain one with Sapphire as well, like I did with my Speedies. I have both versions because it gives you different kind of joy. But I'm deviating. So I love within Breguet, the Type 20s. That's where I started off because I love pilot watches. But then looking at all the guilloche dials, the, the weird layout on the dials, when they came out with the traditional which we have numerous versions of today. It's, it's mechanical art. It has depth. I love it. Breguet, he was a genius. Yeah, when it comes to heritage brands, I mean, there aren't really any bigger, better, and more revered, on paper at least, than Breguet. And it's one of those brands that I've always admired, but maybe never adored. There have been one or two models released during my career that have really piqued my interest. But recently, the older I get, I think, the more and more I find myself gravitating towards the wonder that is reggae and the the true, pure beauty that one can find in the tradition collection especially. Coin-edged cases, these ones with a little vertical line similar to the edges that you'll find on a coin, like a euro, for example, or a pound coin, uh, something that I never, ever, ever thought I would fall in love with. But now, I quite openly have tumbled head over heels into uh, a relationship with coin edge cases. And I think that there will come a time in my life when I own a rose gold breguet with a silver dial, perhaps gear shade, maybe a moon phase. And there are some really, really nice ones to choose from. In our group, BT actually started this conversation because he shared a perpetual retrograde calendar with us, and it was an absolute barnstormer of a watch. You can get it in white gold, you can get it in rose gold, and it might well be the perfect Breguet. And yeah, it's expensive, of course. Um, oh no, it's not expensive. Let's say it, it's a lot of money. I think it's probably worth it. Sometimes the brand turns me off a little bit because it's part of a swatch group. And I think that it suffers because of that. And I think that's what causes it to be underrated in the same way that maybe people underrate Blancpain, another credible legacy brand that has a bit of an easier time with a modern audience, thanks to the 50 Fathoms and successes like that, like the Bathy Scarf and the uh, Air Command, for example, the Chronograph. They're very modern watches. They're very of the day, you know, so you can see why Blancpain can connect very easy with an up-and-coming audience, whereas Breguet is definitely a bit more of a 
heritage brands, if it takes time to understand, they make granddad watches, you know, they make a watch you might buy yourself when you're 40 or 50. You wouldn't see many young men or women in their 20s rocking a breguet. Maybe that could change with a different approach to the marketing. Maybe they do need to sort of invest in some more hip ambassadors and try and create this strange fusion of an old style watch with a new style celebrity. I don't know. But I think that the watches are definitely there. I think that they are massively underrated. BT is right. They are underrated and they deserve more respect. And my feeling is they're underrated because their magic is lost as part of the machine that is the Swatch Group. If this were an independent brand doing this, it would be blowing our minds. Do you know what I mean, Alan? Do you, do you get that sense yourself? Yes, you actually said it spot on. I never liked the Coin Edge watches. I accepted it on the Type 20. The older I get, I said this on air, I'm going thinner, uh, more classics, smaller diameters, and more into the complication side of things. It, it pains me indeed that since Nick Hayek Sr. is not there anymore, it seems the love has diminished within the Swatch Group, though his nephew, Mark Hayek, runs the show at Blanc and Breguet, all the manufacturers behind it, so uh, Piguet, etc., La Nouvelle Le Mania, etc. But they're all over the place, uh, and we discussed this on air. Yeah. And they messed up with the relaunches, I think, of the Type 20s. We saw the two Type 20s, one with the 2-0, one with the double X. And although, in their defense, when you and I visited Brigade during Geneva, um, Watches of Wonder, sorry, not Geneva, Watch Days, that's coming up, and Rob and I are most probably going together. So get ready for some mayhem on air <laughs> and in Geneva. <laughs> and in the Brigade Boutique, because I know what you're going to say. That was our, my favorite meeting. Oh, yeah. I know, I know it was your favorite meeting. Huh. And for me, it was double my favorite meeting because there was an amazing lady welcoming us and, and well, showing me novelties. And I don't know what you two were doing, but I got mesmerized by the watches and I got pulled in because you struck a very interesting topic. Who actually wears Breguet, right? So if you look below 40 and in, in Europe or in the crowds I hang out with, some of my friends have the marine chrono on rubber, but it's not my cup of tea. Now, I do know that our mutual friend Robert Yambu recently bought a tradition. And obviously, my fellow Red Bar crew member, Dan Schoot, your ex-colleague at Fratello, bought a small white gold, I don't know what number. I hardly can remember Patek four-digit references, let alone uh, Breguet references. Lovely pieces. So to circle back to BT's question, is it overlooked? I guess so. And I think that in the secondary market, it's reflected in the market values. And... I guess that when somebody wakes up again at Swatch Group and they come to their senses again, they will give it the right TLC. And I think that we'll see better pieces. I think the Breguet's in good hands at the moment. Because, yeah, Mark has been overseeing Blancpain and Breguet since 2010. But in 2022, Lionel Amarca 
who was previously with Blancpain in a senior role, has come over to Breguet as the CEO and is taking the brand, I think, in good directions. He's a really cool guy, really nice to work with. And with Lucy Notari, the the woman that Alan was referring to in our meeting in Geneva, at the helm of communications, I think they're going to do really good things. So I am very, very positive. Can I just raise one other question about Breguet? Or maybe not just about Breguet, but about brands like Breguet. I mentioned that throughout my career, there have been several Breguet watches that I like, but those watches are kind of in the minority when you assess how many releases there have been over that period of time. One of my problems that I seem to have, and I just noticed this when I was thinking about the watches I do like from Breguet, is that when I buy a watch, I very rarely just buy that watch. I am often, in my mind at least, in my mind, buying the brand. And I feel, and I've never really said this out loud because I never really thought about it consciously before, but I, I suddenly became aware of it. So I thought I would share. I feel like the watch I have on my wrist is not just an ambassador for the entire catalog, but maybe a agglomeration of it. It's like an average. So I feel like the watch I'm wearing is not just the watch I'm wearing. It's also the some of its peers. And I think, therefore, if I come across a brand that has a collection, and this is not true of Breguet, by the way, I, I like Breguet, I like all Breguets, I only love a few, but if I come across a brand that has one model that I adore and everything else is trash, I will feel disinclined to buy the model I adore because I feel it is dragged down by the rest of it. Now, Strange question, but Alon, do you ever feel like that when you are assessing a watch for purchase? So definitely. Um, I've said this in a previous episode. I am a rather emotional guy. Besides that, I'm passionate. Passionate, I am an emotional guy. And my love will rise and diminish according to the people and experiences and vibes behind the bread. So definitely it influences the love and affection for a particular brand or watch. And it's interesting that you raised this topic because yesterday evening in the Real Time Show Network, um, somebody, I won't mention names, discussed a particular brand, won't mention it because it's not really relevant right now. And we had an uh, actually half psychological, half philosophical discussion why that particular collector got rid of almost all the watches of that particular brand. And it boiled down to the fact that in, in the several years' time, he was let down by the behavior of the management and he felt they weren't ethical enough. And that triggered him to sell off all of the watches he had from that particular brand. So you and I are not alone, apparently, that think and feel and behave like that. So yeah, definitely so. Yeah, so that's interesting, right? Because the collector you're referring to and the brand that he was offloading, I remembered who it was as you were speaking. That's one thing about like being let down by the brand, okay? And like we've talked previously about how having a bad relationship with or a bad experience with a CEO or the people behind the brand can switch you off for the watches. That's not really what I'm driving at. Like what I'm driving at is devoid of emotional connections with the brand or the people behind it, the actual physical collection, to me, 
affects my potential attachment to any one member of that collection. Now, I don't, is that weird? You know, maybe it is weird, maybe it's not. But when I look at some of the watches in my collection, there is, there's, there's one that sticks out to me as an outlier. And that's my glasses to Riganel. Because for quite a long time, I had a pretty low opinion of all Glassiter Original models. And that only started to shift slightly when I first got the 1970s chronographs on my wrist. And I fell in love with that, which was unlike anything else in the industry and unlike anything else within that collection. And yet it took me several years to pull the trigger on one, not just because I was waiting for a color I didn't know was coming, which is what happened in the end, but because I needed the rest of the collection to kind of step up its game a little bit. Because I was like, well, I'm, I'm about to spend 15,000 euros, no small amount of money, on a watch that is probably not going to make money on the secondary market. So it's really a purchase for my heart. And I need to feel like this brand is going places and is well stocked with good quality models from top to bottom. And the CQ range actually did that for me. It created another pocket of interest within a brand that had always been mono model to me. And it gave me more confidence and it gave me more love for the brand in general. And through that, I was then able to start enjoying some of the Senator pieces and some of the old school models from Glasser to Riganel. And my opinion of it collection elevated to the point at which I was able to spend money on one piece. Now, when it comes to Breguet, I'd love to own a rose gold, slim, maybe perpetual calendar, coinage case, Breguet. But it has to come at a point where I feel the whole collection is up to snuff. And I think that we're getting there. I think that we're going to see a new golden age. And I hope the Swatch gives Breguet the platform it deserves. I'll shut up. Let's go to another question. Beautifully said. And I think we're going to see some fireworks in the near future. So thank you, BT, for the question. Let's keep going. Um, should we go to Emiliano Schnitzer? He's used the contact form. Good man. Good man. Very good man. He's very active in the network as well. So thank you for that. He's a top bloke. Top bloke. Thank you, Emiliano. Thank you. I had an interesting topic for you. Rolex just opened their mono brand boutique on board a cruise ship. The MSC Explorer. One. What is interesting about this is that Rolex have never wanted to open a mono brand on board any ship. And this caused many ships to work with pre-owned Rolex via wxtusa.com so in this environment where rolex is closing ad's they decide to finally open a ship interesting 180 on their part and now lvmh starboard will be banging on rolex door for a change to one mono brand on board to me this feels strange since rolex doesn't have enough stock for ad's but now for ships they do how many people are going to go on the ships just for a chance to get some Rolex, watch, Rolex watches? What are your thoughts? Interesting. Um, Rob, you want me to go first or you want to jump in? You go ahead. You're the retail boy. Uh, very interesting, uh, Emiliano. I, I didn't know that Rolex was opening on cruise ships. But on the other hand, it doesn't surprise me at all. Why it doesn't surprise me at all. Brands consider airports cruise ships, hotels, and uh, 
I call them tourist traps. So think of these mega stores where only or mostly tourists come. They call that travel retail. So their distribution is divided from wholesale to consumers is either they call it uh, the wholesale channel is independent ADs like I am. And then you have the monobrand channel. So it's the vertical. And then they call e-com. And the fourth one is travel retail. So they, they segment all these things. Because Rolex has always been in airports, it doesn't surprise me that they would go to cruise ship. The funny thing is, I've never been on a cruise yet. I believe my parents have done one or two. But everybody that I speak that goes on cruises raves about it. I've actually never heard negative stories about cruise holidays. And think about it. You're trapped on a huge vessel which is the size of a, a skyscraper in volume of meters. And you're relaxed. You're having a blast. There is not much shopping unless you dock the boat and go sightseeing for half a day or full day. But I have a lot of customers that actually bought luxury wristwatches on cruise ships. And usually they pull the trigger at the end of their trip. So if they're a week on the boat, they'll go six times into that store because they, well, they have time and a lot of time. And people buy luxury stuff because a on holidays because a they have a lot of time b they're relaxed and it's often a memento, so it doesn't surprise me that much. So I don't find this shocking. Honestly, I don't think, and I'm not sure this is an assumption that Rolex went in themselves and it's a fully owned subsidiary as they call it. Because if I'm not mistaken, Rolex doesn't own one single brand boutique in the world, maybe in China, but I don't even think so. Patek apparently only owns three, which is Geneva, London, and China. Geneva, well, it's a logical one because it's the old location where the Patek Museum is today. I believe Rue de Rome. China, because they couldn't otherwise, or they didn't have partners. And London was because Papa Stern said that London is the most important city, so we're going to go there. But they don't have the ambition to do retail. Likewise for the Rolex group. So both for Rolex and Tudor. This is as far as I know. But then again, who the hell am I, right? So I think they teamed up with a retailer. And these are called franchise mono brand boutique stores, which... On average now today, all the monobrands you'll see worldwide, half of them today are branded as monobrand, as if they're verticalized, but they're actually run by a local AD. My guess, that's the case for this uh, cruise enterprise retail operation. Now, what I do find interesting in this question is the second part, in which they, he, Emiliano finds it weird that they open up more stores. But he rightfully said so. It's a zero-sum game. Rolex is closing ADs worldwide, and they are producing more watches. They can offload them because demand is still crazy and surpasses supply. So they in, in, in retail and real estate, we talk about the white dots map. So the map with the white dots, so when you want world domination, you look where you have blank spots, let's say. I'm, I'm translating it from Dutch. So blank spots map. So they just look at the world, hey, where don't we dominate yet? And that's where they focus on. And when they open something new, 
somewhere in the world they've closed down. So they didn't open more accounts and they always allocate an X amount of watches per year, per door, per retail, per country. And it's all done very thoroughly and they make sure that everybody has a healthy growth and it's already mapped out one, two, three years ahead and you get what they promise and very, very solid. So actually, Emiliano, I personally don't find both topics in your message that shocking. I hope I was clear and explained it well. Sorry for the long one. Rob, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I think I'm coming at it slightly differently. I get what you're saying. So basically, if you have a monobrand, then you have to have stock. It's not like being in a regular AD, is it? I mean, you can't just have a store and the store be entirely empty all the time, especially not if it's a destination store, as I guess every cruise ship store would qualify as. Now, just to just to walk back what I said a little bit there, I frequently fly out of Geneva and there is a Rolex boutique there and they very rarely have much that anyone wants to buy for sale. So maybe they are used to, you know, you know, having no stock. But again, that's a franchise store, I'm sure, as you mentioned. But you have to imagine that Rolex will prioritize supplying watches to this boat. You got to, right? I mean, what's the point in opening it on a floating city with a captive audience of moneyed individuals if you're not going to sell the watches? And what better place to sell, if I'm being quite frank? And to Emiliano's addenda, yeah, I think people will actually go on a cruise to get their hands on a Rolex. I mean, why not? I mean, I love the idea of cruise ships. I've never been on one. I'm totally comfortable with being on a floating city in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I took a 70, what was it, 70 feet or 70 meters? I always forget. A 70 something or other, uh, 70 ton, let's say, steel hulled boat all across the Arctic Ocean to a remote volcano. So, you know, sitting on a deck chair on a boat the size of Southampton is nothing too terrifying from my perspective. And if I get to buy myself a box fresh, I don't know what, GMT Master 2, maybe straight off the shelf, straight out of the cabinet, straight onto the wrist, straight into the pool, then yes, please, I'd take it. And I'm actually going to go now, after we finish recording this, have a look on MSC's website and try and figure out which boat it is and where it's going and whether or not I can actually join it for a little bit because that'd be fun. That's a lot of fun. Thanks, Emiliano. You've brightened up my day. Okay, next question. Uh, let's go to David Lafferty. Not the first time we've had David's questions on the show, and it hopefully won't be the last because he does ask some good ones. This came in via the TRTS network, which if you'd like to join, please just get in touch with us via the usual channels. Send us a text, send us an Instagram message, send us an email, hit us up via the contact form. We'll send you a link and you can sign up to the community and you can join whichever groups within the community you find relevant to your hobby. Okay. David says, serious question here. Let me start by saying that I absolutely love Alon. <laughs> Joke. He says, let me start by saying that I absolutely love MBNF and specifically love how open, honest, and vulnerable Max is in interviews in an industry that can be overshadowed by peacocking types. We hear a ton of conversation about homage watches and designs. They are almost always in reference to someone making a less expensive version of a classic. But MBNF is completely honest that the horological machine number five was inspired directly by the Amida Digitrend, but 
put a price tag of $60,000 on it, to which I've never heard anyone say anything negative. Is it plausible that taking something that was $1,000, expanding on it, but charging $60,000 is somehow acceptable? So he says, guys, give us your opinion on this. What do we think about it going the other way around? So basically what David's saying is normally someone will copy a classic that costs big bucks and charge a small price so people can get that on their wrist. And to that note, by the way, we need to talk about those new Seiko Royal Oaks that just dropped. Okay, perfect example. Fell into our laps. Much better than the recent conversations we've been having about the CW12 or the Argon because this is absolutely unequivocally a stone cold copy of the Audemars Piguet Royal Oak. We'll talk about that in a second. How do we feel about stuff like that versus taking something, yeah, this is a, it's a rare situation, I guess, that you have this scenario, but taking something cheap and making it super duper and charging absolute mega bucks for it. Alan, take it away. What are your thoughts on this topic? So thank you, David. Thank you for your passion in the network as well. And obviously you are provoking both us, the network and uh, egging things on. But Max obviously didn't take a watch, a vintage watch that is a thousand and made it 60. He took the intellectual idea of that watch and made a crazy mechanical version that could resemble that initial thing. So that's fine. You know why? Because he was open about it. Because he said, hey, that's where inspiration comes from. And suddenly, you can't criticize it anymore. And yes, Max is a lovely guy. He is open. From day one, he he was under the radar Jijal Coulter when he came to Harry Winston. He started the Opus series, which is basically MBNF 1.0, because he brought friends together and started the collab trend, basically, if you think about it. And that was the predecessor of MBNF. And MBNF is all about bringing friends together, bringing creative minds together, bringing talent together. And it's a collective. And it's like a jazz band, right? It's, I mean, the Dave Brubeck uh, quintet is not just Dave Brubeck. He's the lead guy. He brings in maybe uh, the sales tickets, but you're as strong as the weakest link. And, and Max understands that. And that was his innovative vision and execution back in the day. And for him, it's more than logical to say, hey, I'm inspired by that. I We did hear in the network, which we learn also a lot of stuff in our own network, is that apparently he bought the intellectual property of that watch, which I didn't have time to research if that's true or not. But that's actually a stroke of genius as well, because just saying it is not enough. He went full 360 on it and made sure that uh, he, he does it the right way. So to answer that analogy, those are my two cents. And I liked, Rob, how you twisted it upside down 180 degrees and said, hey, what if you make a cheaper version? So for me, and, and we, we discussed, for example, there was a lot of uh, discussion around the Argon project there was some discussions about the 12, which we've discussed in the network, on air, both with Adrian Buchmann, Mike Franz, the CEO and co-founder of Christopher Ward. And we asked them their perception on originality, about design, and very interesting discussions. And we talked to a lot of designers on air as well. As long as you are open 
about it as a creator, as a brand, I'm totally fine with it. But don't hide, be opaque, so muddy waters, that kind of stuff, I don't like. And now, Rob, you said something uh, shocking. You brought it as if Seiko manufactured Royal Old Lookalikes, but those are mods. So um, we had a discussion in the network that people are buying uh, fake Royal Oak cases straps and then put in Psycho calibers and dials, right, Rob? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to. So that for me is a no-go. I mean, it, it, it's idiotic on so many levels besides that. <laughs> All right, are you Rob Nuts in disguise? Bloody hell, carry on. <laughs> Please, go ahead. No, but it's idiotic on so many levels. A, I'm anti-fake watches. I'm anti, they call it replica watches, right? So I don't mean retro-inspired. I don't mean vintage-inspired. Replica means making a fake, copied a new one, a, a real one. So fake, I, I love the campaign in 2009. I don't, don't know if you remember the Swiss industry made fake watches are for fake people. Now, if you remember that campaign, so that's vividly engraved into my mind. So whenever I think that, I always say, don't buy a fake watch, buy a swatch. I'm not even talking about a moon swatch. You'll be cooler than the guy that you think or gal that you think you are by wearing a fake watch and trying to be cool. So it's anti-cool. Anyways, and, 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 and why is it also idiotic in my mind for those people that are wearing a 100% fake Royal Oak that says Adamal Piquet on the dial or these psycho mods? Why is it idiotic in my mind? So you want to take the risk of getting robbed, uh, have your head bashed in, a, a knife in your ribs, or literally get your hand chopped off for a freaking replica? How stupid can you be? Yeah, that's um, that's pretty dumb. Maybe it's Darwinism entering watchmaking. You know, <laughs> people will probably get pretty bored of this trend pretty fast. And I couldn't agree with you more. Like, there is no need to wear fake stuff. There's good, affordable stuff out there at every level. Like, dress and wear watches within your budget and do so with consideration and with uh, with, with confidence. And I think that you'll you'll look 10 times better than if you wear a load of knockoff Gucci gear down the pub while sipping a pint of £1.50 miles. That's my opinion. I've always found that a bit incongruous. Uh, anyway, yeah, interesting question. Does it go up as well as it goes down? Is it better going up? You know, in some ways, I think, um, I think it, it's much more palatable going up so starting with some very humble design inspiration and then going and taking it to the stratosphere, to levels that you never thought it could possibly go. It's interesting that you can do that and it still be commercial because I could see it being a really interesting exercise for a museum exhibition, for example, taking very humdrum household objects like a toaster and then doing ridiculous shit to it, like studying it with diamonds, making it out of platinum, you know, uh, skeletonizing the the toaster work like the the toast ejection mechanism or whatever that could be pretty funny but nobody would buy that it's curious that you can do it with a watch and you can have such success that way but i think we had a lot of discussions and we had them in real time actually our opinions changed and morphed uh over time on air as we had these debates and i know my opinion certainly shifted i was quite hard line against imitations 
when we first started this conversational journey together. But I think now I've come down to be quite a defender of designers cherry picking elements, even very obvious elements from designs and putting them together in new and creative ways. I think I was blinded by my desire for complete originality, not really thinking hard enough about the fact that complete originality itself is uh, the holy grail, almost impossible to come upon in watchmaking. And we should be very accepting. And we could be critical when these endeavors don't work. It's not to say that like, oh, every mishmash of previously existing elements is a triumph because in spirit, it was well-intended. It's like, no, it can still be crap. It can still be a failure. You know, I would personally say, and I, I've like not held one in my hand, but like the PRX, and I would personally say, although this is a bit harsh, okay, I know it's kind of a modern classic in its own way, but like even the PRX to me is is not, you know, I don't want to say that. So on a positive note, for example, I could say, oh, well, the Argon, after great consideration, after having had it on the wrist, after talking about it so extensively, is a success story. Now, do I buy that success story or not? That's a different question entirely. Does it fit in my collection? Does it fit in my wearing habits? It's a different matter entirely. I could say theoretically, although I'm not going to say this, but the 12 is less successful for me because it's not as far away from the Antarctic because I need it to be for it to come across as distinct, for it to be a runaway success in my mind. But other people I know disagree. Other people feel that it's even better stylistically, and that's also fine. So yeah, I think that it's been a healthy adventure to go on with you and with the audience and with the listeners and the members of the, of the network because we're all learning, we're all adjusting, we're all constantly modifying our opinions and our feelings on these difficult issues when it comes to the philosophy of design and certainly the importance of intellectual property. So I think that now we are in an era of sharing, collaboration, and I hope increased experimentation, which will result in a lot of catastrophes of design, but also hopefully a few more classics. What do you think about that? We have been agreeing, I believe, on almost everything during our Omega episode. Today we went up and down, but um, I guess towards the summer, you're, you and I are both better spirits, so we are agreeing more. Uh, beautifully said, well said, and I guess the the raison d'être, the, the, the reason of being for us is to find at the end of our podcast career with the real-time show, which may hopefully last decades, is to find the answer to what is original and what isn't. And we're at the dawn of singularity and AI taking over. And while we're recording this, we we had the chat GPT and, uh, and then and I forgot the, the name for that software that creates images uh, and all these, these these names. I forgot them, which I'm not a huge fan of them. And and the big question is, is AI original? Well, 100% they aren't because everything is associated with uh, these computers because they need a database to withdraw knowledge from. So, and, and then goes the question, are people really 100% original and create something new? So, and and so you posed that hypothetical hypothesis, actually. So very interesting, and we'll keep on seeking that answer, I guess, on the show, Rob. 
Indeed we shall, yeah, and long may it continue. Like you said, hopefully this show will run for decades. Could you imagine us at 60 years old? Still waxing lyrical about watches. That'd be a, a funny old thing to see, wouldn't it? And I bet our watches will get increasingly small as our waistlines expand. I'm, I'm sure that's what's going to happen to us. So by that point, we'll be like enormous, gluttonous whales with teeny tiny 34 millimeter gold Cartiers on our wrists. What a what a sight that'd be. Never a Cartier for me, but maybe for you. But I'm actually shocked that people are now, we're slowly creeping to our first anniversary. I'm truly shocked that so many thousands of people are listening and huh. and, and 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 the 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 amazing community we we have have the honor to have around us and support us and help us and feed us and and keep us sharp and on our toes and uh, I'm really humbled I'm serious so I I never imagined that and I can't imagine now when we're 60 indeed that we're waxing lyrically about watches but hey you never know content is king right original contact or maybe are we original or aren't we i think we've proven ourselves to be uh thought leaders in the podcasting space that's for sure and i've i have uh seen with quite some satisfaction some imitation from uh some peers of ours and i am very happy to see that they regard the work that we're doing so highly as to put out similar content, and that's that's really nice of them. Anyway, <laughs> if you'd like to be part of our future shows, then please do get in touch with us via one of the usual channels. You can hit us up on Instagram. You'll find me there at Rob Nuds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or Alon at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. You can contact us via email, rob at therealtime.show, or Alon at therealtime.show. Or you can contact us via our contact form on the website, www.therealtime.show. Please like the podcast, follow it. If you have a moment, leave us a nice positive review. It doesn't need to be long, just a few nice words would be very much appreciated. We'll be back next week with another Q&A session and an interview with one of Watchmaking's leading lights. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. <laughs>